0: ready? I was born ready.
1: Welcome to the Advisory Opinions Podcast. I'm David French with Sarah Isger, and we've got a lot. I say this every time, Sarah. We've got a lot to talk about.
0: We really um, do, though. I mean, for the summer, normally summer is like sort of the doldrums. Not this summer.
1: No, not within a hundred uh, days. Is it one hundred or is it ninety nine? Ninety nine.
0: I got ninety nine problems, and an election is won.
1: Good night. That's unbelievable. So we are. It has been longer since the pandemic lockdown started until the gap between when the pandemic lock, lockdown started and now is oh, longer yeah. than the, what we have now till the election. That's crazy.
0: Yeah. Well. So and- we're gonna. Uh, And, you know, that's just until the last day that people vote, of course.
1: Right, right. Voting starts soon. Real uh, soon. So
0: September, um, the very beginning of September, North Carolina is going to mail out their ballots. Mid-September, Pennsylvania and Michigan can actually, you can do in-person early voting. And then a whole bunch of states by September 18th and 19th start uh, in-person early voting. So, I mean, this thing's underway real soon.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Well, okay. Let's, uh, let's got to lay out, the sh- lay out the podcast here. So we're going to start by talking uh, exactly what we're talking about, the election. Sarah has a brand new newsletter. I would encourage you to subscribe to it. Um, it's called The Sweep. And she started off with a bang with, I thought, a really interesting analysis of the opening campaign ads or the latest round of campaign ads from Trump and from Biden. And so we're going to start off talking about that. We're going to ask what on earth is going on at the Supreme Court with religious liberty. There was a rather explosive case that landed, uh, I believe it was Friday afternoon, um, that prohibited, that upheld um, Nevada's restrictions on churches, where their rules are far more restrictive on churches than they are on casinos. And that was very interesting. To be clear, listeners,
0: it actually upheld Nevada's restrictions on (laughs) church attendance. Oh,
1: yes. (laughs) Yeah. Not only have you warned me out about that pronunciation, countless listeners have. So I'm going to yield uh, Nevada. I've uh, It just automatically comes out Nevada, but I'll try. Nevada. Um, we're going to talk about Josh Hawley's vow that he will not vote for a Supreme Court nominee who did not say that Roe v. Wade was wrongly decided before his nomination or her nomination. Uh, We're going to talk about a really interesting uh, CNN-reported piece about the machinations behind the scenes in the Supreme Court this last term. We're going to answer a reader email on the last two points. How would some really important cases have come out differently if Merrick Garland was on the court? And then we're going to answer a really interesting question about kids and risk tolerance. Um, And Sarah and I have some different perspectives on that. So before we dive in... um, one thing I just want to remind listeners because we've got a lot of new listeners and we're really thankful for that. And you all may not know we're all part of... that. Sarah and I are part of Dispatch Media, thedispatch.com. Love for you to check us out. And also, would love for the new listeners to go to Apple Podcasts and rate us and provide a review. That would help us out a great deal and we appreciate it. Um, so, without further ado, Sarah, you launched uh, a new... Is it every Monday morning?
0: Yeah, it'll be every Monday. And then we're going to have little... Uh, updates through the week of interesting tidbits, but the main newsletter will be Mondays.
1: And this one was opened out to anybody. Anybody can click on this. This is not behind the paywall. The They all will be the
0: Monday's one. The Monday long one will be free to everyone through the election. And then the little like, uh, you know, tidbits during the week of breaking news and reported stories will be members only.
1: Oh, good. Okay. Very similar, where I have a Sunday newsletter that's open to everybody, and then my other newsletters during the week are members only. So, tell us about uh, issue number one, and talk us through some of the ad strategies because I watched each one of the ads that you highlighted, and I'm, if they hit me in very different ways, and so I, I want
0: to. Ooh, well, let me just describe the ads, and then I want to hear how they hit you. So, uh, first of all, the. Two campaigns, and by campaigns, I mean both the actual legal unit of the campaign, but also their allies. So that's going to include the RNC, the DNC, and these like outside groups. All put together, between now and the election, have already reserved a quarter billion dollars in ad time. With a B. Uh, So, and up to this point, Trump and his uh, party committees have already topped 900 million dollars. So we're well over the 1 billion mark so far and we're going to be well over it again. (laughs) Uh, Now, they're buying time. Uh, Biden team bought time in six states. These will not surprise you. Arizona, Florida, Michigan, North Carolina, Pennsylvania, and Wisconsin for next week. Trump has bought time in 12 states. Uh, It includes Ohio and Georgia, but it also includes Minnesota and New Hampshire, for instance. So, okay, the first ad that I talked about was the Trump ad. He has uh, put more money behind this ad. It has run more times than any of his other ads, and that's why I chose this one. You listeners may have seen some other versions of this ad because there are several that are all on this theme. It ends with the tagline, you won't be safe in Joe Biden's America, but this is the, you won't be safe in Joe Biden's America, one that has run the most. So um, it basically just starts with a phone in an empty room, and it's ringing, and a Female automated voice picks up and says, you know, basically, you've reached 911 because the police have been defunded. We're not here to answer your call. If you're calling to report a rape, press one. If you're calling to report a murder, press two, et cetera, et cetera. And then it says, our estimated wait time is currently five days. And then it says, you won't be safe in Joe Biden's America. Uh, in the second half of the ad, it shows footage of, you know, various protesters buildings on fire, windows being broken. It's dark. It's a dark, dark ad, David. So uh, my take on this was trying to figure out who the audience is because there's a lot of sort of female shout-outs. The voiceover is female. Uh, A lot of the protesters that they use are white females, which was interesting. But to me, the most important thing, and what was jarring to me listening to it for the first time, was uh, rape came first in the list on the 911 call, press one if you want to report a rape. But it also like, she really emphasized the word. And I was like, huh. And you know, my first gut was like, oh, well this is geared towards women. But then I watched it like three or four many more times. And I, I really realized like, nope, this is not geared towards women. This is geared towards men who know women. <laughs> uh, so, you know, to me, this was about the white non college-educated male vote, which he is running up 34 points against Biden with. No question, he's got them locked down. But in 2016, he won them by 48 points. So he's got a 12-point difference there. And I think this ad is meant to shore that up to 2016 levels because that is, in you know a lot of places, the largest voting block. Uh, mm-hmm. They can make up 20% or more of the electorate, just this white, non-college-educated male vote in some of these states. So increasing that by 12 points can net you two points, which, of course, in 2016 numbers would be a landslide in a lot of these states. So, David, what was your take watching the ad?
1: Well, first, I want to go back and I want to watch a clip or a uh, trailer from the Purge movies. Yeah. Because I think it's the same female voice.
0: Interesting. Yeah, it does. it does have that at least if it's not the same person, it's mirroring it.
1: Yeah, it's very much mirroring it. It's very much mirroring that sort of purge uh, anarchy lawlessness sort of um, vibe to it for sure. Um, I found the ad to be trans incandescently bad, but I also knew it was completely not aimed at me.
0: (laughs) That's interesting because I actually thought it was pretty well done.
1: Because here's why I thought it was incandescently bad. Okay. Number one, I know for a fact that Joe Biden doesn't want to defund the police and has said so. And number two, I also understand that all of those awful pictures and footage are coming from Trump's America and not Joe Biden's America. And so uh, on the one hand, I felt like, oh, this ad is grotesquely mischaracterizing his opponent and showcasing how bad things are right now. And so, um, and I think, you know, a a lot of... A lot of my friends uh, who are college educated, not all that political, are kind of puzzled by this whole use of footage from right now and how bad things are right now to attack Joe Biden. Uh, But I also know there's a strong group of people who think that Joe Biden wouldn't fight back against any of this stuff at all. And so I do think you're exactly right. This is not aimed at the college educated men or college educated women this is i thought that your analysis of that ad was spot on and even going back to uh, echoing back that kind of purge like language i mean there are, there are a lot of folks in in trump's base of the base of the base of the base who really see him as holding back the the nightmare that he is the man in the standing in the gap holding back the nightmare and so i thought oh yeah that's a great analysis it's not aimed at me it's not aimed at like a person living in a relatively uh safe environment and uh who's sort of seeing what's happening at Portland is very distant um it is it's aimed at somebody else entirely and and I thought, yeah, I think that's a fantastic analysis and but it you know you're you're the campaign professional. it seems if you're running ads to shore up your base of your base of your base, you're playing a little bit of d
0: well. I mean, yes and no. So the social science out there says that persuasion ads don't work. Mm -hmm. And so your two choices are uh, run up your base in enthusiasm and support or get their folks not to vote. You're not going to switch their votes, but Mm -hmm. you can get them to be unenthused. Right. Um, And so, you know, I thought this ad was visceral. And I think that's a high compliment for a political ad because so many of them are boring, predictable, stayed, whatever. Like, this one did grab you. Like, you really watched it. Um, You were wondering what was coming next, which was sort of the Trump presidency. So if you like the Trump presidency, you'll like this ad, which is the point.
1: Yeah. I mean, for me, it was visceral. It made me viscerally angry. (laughs) You're lying about your opponent and you're portraying the chaos that presently exists. <laughs> well, mean, but-
0: let me say one thing, though. They're actually very careful how they word the defund the police thing. They do not say Joe Biden wants to defund this police. They say the radical left wants to defund oh, I the
1: know. police. I know. So,
0: you know, fact check, mm-hmm. it passes. Okay, but <laughs> on to the Biden ads. So there's yeah. two Biden ads that are running this week. That's the $15 million playing in those six states. Uh, quickly, the first one, it's like Joe Biden wears a mask over and over again, like that's the ad. (laughs) It's a white mask. It's a black mask. It's a mask inside. It's a mask outside. It's like the Dr. Seuss of ads about masks. Uh, What stood out to me on this one was Florida, like Florida keeps showing literally a map of Florida. It's not subtle. It's like, hey, Florida. Hey, Florida. Yeah. Uh, So Biden's up quite a bit in Florida. But if he gets Florida, he's up an average of seven points right now. Florida has 29 electoral votes. He doesn't need... Pennsylvania, Michigan, Arizona, or North Carolina if he gets Florida. So I understand why they're going a bit all in on the Florida, not subtle Florida-ness.
1: Yeah, Florida is called relatively early in the night. Um, Yeah, yeah. It's going to be, at that point, there's the yellow brick road uh, all the way to the White House. Um, What did you think of the ad?
0: Uh, You know, it never mentions Donald Trump. It references, you know, we need a president who over and over again. But, you know, this was definitely just aimed at his people. This is not to try to depress Trump vote turnout or anything like that. In some ways, it's an introduction ad to Joe Biden. Uh, It paired, interestingly, with the next ad. I'll talk about that one, and then we can sort of talk about them together. The next one is called Tested. And if you've ever seen a political ad, you've seen this ad. So, right, like, I know that I'm writing a newsletter about this ad, and I still zoned out in the middle of it. And then I went to rewatch it, and I zoned out again. So, like, (laughs) (laughs) it's that ad. I mean, it's super-duper boring. It has the line, you know, Joe Biden will give every American a path to a good-paying job, a quality education, and affordable health care, in exactly that tone that if I asked you to read an ad in your political ad voice, you would read it. Um, But that's the point of it. It's meant to be boring. It's very good at being boring. It makes you feel comfortable. And after the last six months, zoning out during a political ad may be just what you're looking for. And if so, Joe Biden is the candidate you want. If you don't want the, it's darkness in America.
1: So are you ready for this, you know, hyper representative focus group of one again? Yes, yes. Okay. So hyper representative focus group one. I zoned out in the mask ad about one point four seconds into it, <laughs> and I'm and I'm pro masking. I mean, we've had these conversations endlessly on you know on our podcast, on the Dispatch podcast, uh, I've tweeted, written about it. I'm pro mask, but I've, I immediately was like, oh, I, I get this. He's saying I'm the responsible one, and by implication, the president is not the responsible one.
0: Well, and that Got one too, it. It. it's funny because the the script for it says nothing. Numbers don't lie. Infection rates are going up. We need a president who will level with the American people. Like, oh, what is... So what is being said is not important. It's really just you getting to see Joe Biden looking like an adult who's calming things down. Uh, There's the scene in the church, which I wrote about quite a bit, Mm -hmm. that like this was not meant for the woke left young progressives to win them back over from Sanders or Warren. Bingo. Not at all. There's not Bingo. protests. There's not any wokeness whatsoever. I point out this uh, couple that cracked me up. It's like this young couple doing a Zoom happy hour with their friends or something. They just look pleased as punch. They are just happy people. <laughs> you know, the thing that I said in the newsletter was, they clearly aren't discussing universal healthcare or systemic racism. They're more likely admiring their friend's new puppy or sourdough starter. Yeah. Like, this is the group that Joe Biden wants to run up his score with, which I think is yes. fascinating after all the discussion through the primaries about how's he going to win over the Sanders people. With $15 million on the line, the answer is, eh.
1: Yeah, whatever. I mean, this is, you know, we've we've talked about the Justice Roberts of the electorate. That's the suburban voter. And this is aimed flat out at the sur- suburban voter. And I thought the other one was, too. And I actually... Did not zone out on. The, I had the exact opposite. Interesting. Yeah. So, what I thought was really effective about the second one wasn't the very end part, which is the I did zone out during the I'm going to healthcare and blah, you know all of that <laughs> stuff. Um, what I thought was very clever is he did two things in the first one. I've handled an economic crisis uh-huh. and I've handled a pandemic. Yeah, and they weren't
0: like I. I was not. uh, I mean, I think pointing out the Ebola thing over and over again is maybe a mistake, because at least for me, I don't even remember that. And it wasn't Bingo. like I was in junior high.
1: Bingo. So that's what he's saying. It's like, remember that pandemic that didn't ravage America?
0: <laughs> Touche.
1: Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I think, I mean, like, that's how that's I thought about it was like, huh. okay, I can, we came into office. We had a giant economic crisis. We turned that ship around. There was, and I remember the breathless Ebola coverage because what was happening in Africa was horrifying. I mean, it was horrifying. And places like Fox were talking up the Ebola challenge and all of that here in the United States. And I remember, you know, wall-to-wall headlines when somebody flew back into the U.S. who had Ebola. And um, and then you realize, oh, that didn't hit us, really. <laughs> and so that doesn't that count as, 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 a success, something that he's going to, you know, a feather he's going to put in his cap. And so I thought that was really effective. Uh, and then it went into blah, blah, blah land.
0: <laughs> well, subscribe to the newsletter. If you're listening, I'd love to have your thoughts. I'm jumping in the comment section right after we tape this pod to spar with people and, and get into the weeds. So come on board.
1: Yes. And so one, right before we leave, um, Right before we leave our po- politics talk, I have to say, Sarah, I did not know so many dispatch members wanted to burn the GOP to the ground, salt the earth, uh, salt the earth upon which it stood so that it may never rise again. <laughs> I, I wrote an article or wrote a uh, a newsletter that said, you know, uh, restated my longstanding opposition to, opposition to Donald Trump, but Kind of took win against like the Lincoln Project vision of what should be done to the GOP of just destroying it, and it's very interesting. Uh, you, I, I did not expect the sort of visceral visceral reaction against that. <laughs> and there's something I want to say. There's one thing I want to say uh, in my defense about that. Uh, I I still stand by the piece. But a lot of people accuse me of whataboutism when I talked about how in all of American history, there's one senator, one senator from his party who or one senator who was voted to convict in an impeachment trial, a president of his own party in all of American history. And that's Mitt Romney. And I said, not one Democrat broke ranks and voted to convict Bill Clinton. And a lot of folks accuse me of whataboutism well what you know what we're what about the how bad the democrats are no the purpose and i thought it was clear but apparently not because i really am not a big fan of whataboutism is to show how historic mitt romney's demonstration of political courage was this was this was something that had never happened before in american history and i feel i feel like if you're going to say of a political party you and and the members of a political party either you demonstrate the kind of political courage that's never been demonstrated before in the history of the United States with the exception of one guy uh, or I burn you all to the ground, I'm not sure that's a sustainable standard, Sarah. (laughs) I'm not sure that's a sustainable standard. Uh, It's not one that we've applied before. Uh, So my argument is don't burn something to the ground. Don't burn a party to the ground because it has an R by its name evaluate each politician on his or her merits. And if you drill down, these different GOP politicians have not all marched in lockstep and they've not all done the same things in response to Trump and they've not all behaved the same way and just take it case by case. That's my position, Sarah, and I'm sticking to it.
0: You are welcome to stick in and to that position. <laughs> 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 I... uh I think I'm a little more, it's not that I, I think I belong in the burn it down crowd. I'm just more sympathetic to it in the sense that their point is if you don't burn it down, it weakens the argument against Trumpism. So if you're really against Trumpism, burning it down is part of proving your point that this was a failed experiment. And so, yes, those individual members may not be the worst. In fact, the ones that you're most likely to defeat are the ones who are in fact, most likely to be towards the center. Yeah. But if uh, you know, Republicans took the House somehow and kept the Senate and just lost the presidency, I think their point in the burn-it-down crowd would be like, that's not gonna burn down Trumpism. And that's our goal. Our goal is not saving the conservative movement or saving the Republican Party in the shortest amount of time possible. It's repudiating this thing. And so yeah. their goal is how do you repudiate that the fastest? And I think there's you can have very good differences of opinion, but I think your goal is somewhat different, which is um, you know evaluating people as individuals and who's a good leader and all of that, and that is uh, worthy and interesting and worth discussion. But it is different than what they're trying to do. So I think both yeah. of you are are passing each other in the night a little <laughs> on goals.
1: <laughs> I also think, and this is another point that I made, that there is a if you if if Trump loses and loses decisively. Because there's a difference between Trumpism and Rubioism. Like, I don't agree with every aspect of Rubioism. Uh, I don't agree with every aspect of the way he's interacted in in the Trump camp, you know, with Trump. But there is a very big difference between Marco Rubio and Donald Trump. A very big difference. If you, if Trump is out and Trump loses Florida by seven, eight, nine points, I don't, and Rubio, well, he's not up for re-election. Trying to think of, oh, you know, say Cory Gardner. I think yeah. Cory Gardner's toast, but what, who's non-toast? John, uh, John Cornyn, Collins. pick John, John Cornyn. Cornyn, John Cornyn. So if, let's imagine a reality where John Cornyn wins re-election by six, seven points, five, six, seven points, and Trump loses Texas. Right. By two or three. Is anyone in their right mind going to think that there's any vestige of Trumpism that has been, validated he yes. lost texas yes, like he lost texas well yeah but th- that will be <laughs> that will be like his you know last ditch die hard very online folks the top line will be donald but what they trump would tell you, actually lost texas Yeah.
0: but what they would tell you i think in the burn it down crowd is yeah sure but what allowed trumpism to take root were people like John Cornyn allowing it to take root and not standing up every single day yelling stop. And therefore, yeah, losing the Senate sucks. John Cornyn was a fine person. Uh, but um, we need to prevent this from happening in the future as well. And for you know the nomination next time around and whatever else. So yes, I'm not evaluating John Cornyn as a person. I'm evaluating him as a vehicle. And as a vehicle, he did not stop Trumpism and therefore he's out. Uh, again, I'm not saying I subscribe to this, but I think they have, I think they are principled in their own position and goals.
1: No, I totally agree that they are completely principled in their own position and goals. And it's a very debatable point. <laughs> like this yes. is, this is a point that is, you know, it, it, uh, because there was a, um uh, Bill Crystal and Charlie Sykes were on the Bulwark podcast and they talked about my piece and Charlie wrote a piece in the Bulwark today disagreeing with me. This is, and this is a symbol that a lot of times people use the term never Trump to sweep very broadly with a presumption that we're all the same, that everyone who has opposed Donald Trump is, we're just all the same. We're not all the same. We, we've come into this with different priorities and different concerns. And any time you have a thorny, difficult challenge, you're, you should have different perspectives on how to deal with it.
0: Here's my analogy. You're all textualists but some of you are Gorsuch and some of you are Alito (laughs) and some of you are Kavanaugh. And I'm not even sure which are which right now I'll come back to you, but definitely we have Lincoln project Republican voters against Trump and David French. And, and one of you falls into each justice.
1: (laughs) And, and, and I think one of the things that I'm trying to come at here uh, and that I have an overarching philosophy that I want to transcend the 2020 election which is I want people to judge politicians on individual merits more rather than tribal block voting. I want to, I want to say, cause I wrote in my piece, I have this test that I apply for every person, every race. And that is, do I believe that they have a character that is commensurate with the office that they seek and do uh, they broadly advance my political values? You have to pass both tests because I have this view that says one of the, Quickest ways to get more bad people into politics is to vote for bad people. Um, interesting,
0: interesting theory.
1: <laughs> yeah, it's it's a it's a con- controversial theory, right, Sarah. Right. But we we often believe that the primary process is the process where we make our stand for character, and the general election is when we make our stand for tribe. And and I feel like that has to stop. I feel like that if we keep doing that we're going to keep winding up exactly where we are. So, you know, I kind of have this line in the sand. Every single one of these guys has to earn my vote. They are not entitled to it in any way, shape, or form. They got to earn it. And there's just a simple two-part test there. It's simple. And so that's my that's my story, and I'm sticking to it.
0: All right, on to law.
1: Yes, law. Okay. Uh, so Justice Roberts trended. Friday night, um, and he trended for a very interesting reason. After uh, ruling, he you know he's one of the more solid justices in recent history for religious liberty, but on uh, on Sunday night he joined the Democratic nominated four uh, to side against a church in a case called Calvary Calvary Chapel Dayton Valley versus Sisolak um, that held that uh, which upheld Nevada Nevada right mm, you nailed it restrictions on church attendance so um churches could not admit more than 50 people but at the same time other institutions like casinos breweries bowling alleys gyms can operate at 50% capacity so um a casino with a 500 person occupancy limit may let in up to 250 people but a church with a 500 person occupancy limit and this is quoting Kavanaugh in his his dissent, 500 person co- occupancy limit may let in only 50 people. Um, and Justice Roberts uh, sided with the four Democratic nominees to, and without an opinion, to uphold this restriction on churches, even though they were treated differently than casinos and in a more restrictive way than casinos. Um, and it was such an eye-opener that, uh, as you pointed out in our, our internal slack green room, Sarah, even Vox's Ian Milheiser, who's not normally leading the charge in religious liberty, raised an eyebrow at this sucker. Um, and I'm interested in, in your thoughts.
0: I have a couple of thoughts here. One, let's be very clear. This was not upholding Nevada's rule. This was about the injunction.
1: Right. Yes. But thank you.
0: one of the prongs of getting an injunction is likelihood to succeed on the merits. So it gives you a preview of the merits analysis, but it is not the same as uh, upholding this rule at all. And in fact, I think that Nevada will lose. But eventually. Eventually. But a couple of things. One, um, you know, stays are disfavored in general. Uh, you know, status quo, the court doesn't like to step in when it, you know, doesn't need to, two, you've got an ongoing pandemic. And I think there's some deference that's built in to the States taking care of this, the way they see fit. And three, you've got this case out of California that we talked about back in April, early May, uh, that was similar in its most superficial level and quite different in terms of its timing and what we knew about the virus then. And, uh, what, businesses, et cetera, were in the in-group versus the out-group. And I do think it's very different when you're talking grocery stores versus casinos. But I can see why Roberts felt like, well, but it's not that different. I know it's different, but it's not that different. And that this is all on a spectrum, and therefore, we're not going to do an injunction on this either. Uh, 24 pages of dissent. Alito wrote the first one. Gorsuch just wrote a paragraph that was like a yeah boy paragraph.
1: And, is that a term uh, of art? Like um,
0: it is, yeah.
1: GBR, yeah, yeah boy, yeah okay. boy. Uh,
0: <laughs> and then, and then Kavanaugh wrote another long descent as well. Um, all making, you know. Sometimes I'm like, oh well, the descent's were really interesting because they actually make these really different points. Not here. <laughs> they they're all the same and they're just, like, scratching their heads. Why is this happening? Churches can't be disfavored. I did think that Kavanaugh broke it up into the different types of laws that can exist really well. Um, And his point was, you can disfavor churches and other types of places, fine. You can, like, basically, you can break this up any way you want, but what you can't do is this, this version.
1: (laughs) Right, right. So I, you know... So I think Roberts was wrong, but I'm not pressing the panic button about this because C- here's what I think is happening. You remember all the way back at the beginning of the pandemic, you and I dedicated a ton of time to sort of like the police powers of the states in a time of pandemic. And one of the points that we made is it's, there is a, there is a at the onset of a pandemic, when danger is at its greatest, when our, knowledge base about how this thing spreads and everything is at its lowest, These the states are going to have maximum discretion, just maximum discretion to, to clamp down on this. And then when the pandemic eases, when we know a lot more about it, when infections are diminishing, when perhaps we're on the verge of, you know, we, we have a vaccine or we have treatments and we have methods of controlling it, then that state interest is going to be less compelling. It's going to be uh, there's going to be a a the liberty interests are going to begin to assert themselves in in a very conventional way but in between there in between the the max, the emergency of the onset of the pandemic and the easing of the emergency at the end as we begin to get a handle on it there's a giant gray area
0: and okay. there's just
1: not a lot of case law on this
0: and at i all. think i think you know we've talked about Uh, you know, maybe in June, where we thought we were in the middle of the gray area. I think most people thought we were out of the gray area. And what this opinion says, or the not opinion for the five majority is, nope, we're still in the gray area. And, you know, Kavanaugh's dissent, I think, treats us very much like we are out of the gray area. There's not a whole lot of discussion of, of being in that deference. They all note it and say, like, I get it, but, you know, we know a lot more. And they basically say, we should be out of the gray area by now. And then jump straight into And by the way, here are Kavanaugh's four categories. One, laws that expressly discriminate against religious organizations. And he uses Espinoza, our Blaine Amendment case as an example of that. Two, laws that expressly favor religious organizations. He says, that's fine. You can favor religious organizations over secular organizations, no problem. And that does not violate the Establishment Clause either. Three, laws that do not classify on the basis of religion but apply to secular and religious organizations alike. This is your hated Smith case, David, which is cited Mm -hmm. with an underline by Kavanaugh, noted. Mm -hmm. And for what he calls, you know, this category, which is laws that expressly treat religious organizations equally to some secular organizations, like Smith, kind of, but better or worse than other secular organizations. And that's where it falls afoul of Smith, in his view. Um, But you would prefer that Smith not get mentioned in any of this.
1: <laughs> I would prefer that Smith be nuked from orbit. Yeah. And that the, the name that P that the, the name Smith be so uh, such an anathema in the law that a uh, lawyers by the name of Smith would have to file a motion for special permission to have it used in their pleadings. Um, <laughs> but this I'm definitely kidding.
0: is, you know, I'm not saying it's resurrecting Smith back to its old status, but, it's not like Smith was just sort of cited after a long string site. It yeah. is number three and
1: four. I, I put this in pandemic law. This is, oh, okay. this, yeah, this is pandemic <laughs> law. So, um, I think, and, and I think Ian Mills, Millheiser's analysis was right. He said the real in the real, um, insight here is not is articulated in the, Cal, the California case where um, Justice Roberts did publish an opinion explaining his vote and denying injunctive relief from a California church, which was very different regulatory framework. So the Nevada framework and the California framework were very different. But here was Justice Roberts in the California case. Quote, the precise question of when restrictions on particular social activities should be lifted during the pandemic is a dynamic and fact-intensive matters subject to reasonable disagreement. He said, our Constitution principally entrusts the safety and health of the people to the politically accountable officials of the states to guard and protect. So I it feels like to me that what we have is Roberts is sort of saying there's this area of, dis- there, we're in a zone of discretion right now. We're still in the zone of discretion. And what Alito and Kavanaugh and the others are saying is, the zone of discretion does not extend to treating religious institutions less favorably than similarly situated secular institutions. And I agree with them on that. I think they're absolutely correct on that. But I also think that if we get a handle on this pandemic, um, you would see this decision flip. And... Uh, I, I think, you know, if there's a, a scenario under which if we have a handle on this pandemic, it would be nine zero against Nevada if they try to hold on to this too long. I don't think it's any accident that this came out the way it came out when we're in the middle of a string of day after day after day of 70,000 plus positive tests or 65,000 to 75,000 positive tests and deaths in the U.S. are arcing back upwards. I don't think those two, I think the fact, uh, the facts of what's happening in the pandemic and the deference they show to the state here are connected. I disagree I totally with the outcome. I agree with that.
0: Yeah, I, I agree with that, in part also because looking back at California, if they had ruled the other way, and then there was a resurgence in cases, California could have felt its hands quite tied by a stay from the Supreme Court. And while the Nevada rule here is more stringent and runs more afoul of the First Amendment. I don't think there's much question of that. I do think that sort of the responsible dad of John Roberts is like, ah, yes, I know it would feel good right now. And if we were just ruling on the merits, I, I would be there with you. But it's a fluid situation. If Nevada has a wild uptick in cases, we don't want to have them sitting there in a room spending six hours wondering how to have a new rule that fits with this state. Let's just let them do their thing for a little bit longer.
1: Yeah, I think that's the entirety of what's going on. Um, but I, I still think the Nevada rule is constitutionally defective. But again, that's why I'm not the real enemy here is not Justice Roberts. The real enemy here is coronavirus. Uh, and, <laughs> and, and, and the and friends we a,
0: made along the way.
1: Yeah, <laughs> Exactly. Exactly. We'd like to take a moment and thank our sponsor here, the Bradley Speaker Series. Making sense of current events during this extraordinary time can be trying. Conceived in Liberty, the Bradley Speaker Series, is a new video series that offers meaningful perspectives through engaging 15-minute interviews. Visit bradleyfdn.org backslash liberty to watch their most recent episode featuring British author and historian Andrew Roberts. The author of numerous award-winning books, including his most recent book, Churchill, Walking with Destiny, Roberts is a foremost expert on Winston Churchill. In this episode, he addresses Churchill's approach to governing during a crisis and how he evolved from statist to staunch advocate of the free market system. Roberts also shares his take on the destruction of historical monuments. That's Bradley with an L-E-Y at the end, fdn.org slash liberty to watch the video. Bradley, L-E-Y, F-D-N dot org backslash liberty to watch the video. New episodes will debut weekly, so come back often and subscribe to their YouTube channel to be notified whenever a new video is posted. So shall we move on to uh, our Senator Holly?
0: Man, this was a thing.
1: Do you want to brief the listeners?
0: Yeah, so last night, late last night, this hit my inbox that... Uh Senator Josh Hawley of Missouri, Republican, told the Washington Post that he wouldn't vote for a Supreme Court nominee unless they were on the record saying that Roe v. Wade was wrongly decided. And he says, by explicitly acknowledge, I mean on the record and before they were nominated. So, a couple things here to note. One, he says, explicitly acknowledge that Roe v. Wade is wrongly decided. He does not say you have to explicitly acknowledge that you would overturn Roe v. Wade. Actually, right. which is interesting because I don't see how uh, a justice could say that and not recuse themselves for prejudging uh, a case potentially. Um, but you can say that something was wrongly decided, uh, and then the on the record meaning it doesn't count if you give private assurances, you know, in a meeting with Josh Hawley and then tell him he can't tell the press. It has to be public. And two, before they were nominated, i.e. now. Okay, David, I don't see any potential justice going out and doing this.
1: I agree with you. I agree with you. Um, So there's a couple, there are a few reasons why I think that this was relatively meaningless fan service, okay? So, number one, uh, if you are a feder- if you're a shrewd Federalist Society member who is angling for a uh, if you if you're an extremely ambitious Federalist Society member and you're angling for a, ju- a judicial slot or and you have your sights set on the highest court, and there are people out there who actually are um, quite, I mean, they're they're actually that ambitious and are ca- orienting their careers in that direction. You know what you're not doing, Sarah?
0: (laughs) Taking the bait.
1: (laughs) You're not taking that bait. You're not not taking that bait. Because you know for a fact that there are Republican senators, and there have been from the beginning, who are not necessarily going to cast a vote for you if you have been on the record. Uh, Because there are Republican senators who either uh, support Roe v. Wade or fear that casting a vote uh, in favor of someone who would presumably overrule Roe v. Wade will end their political career.
0: Yeah, I mean, some interesting things on this. One, the right has for a long time said that it will not make Roe v. Wade a litmus test. And recently, the left has said that they will make Citizens United a litmus test. And I think Shelby as well will be a litmus test, although I haven't heard anyone explicitly say that one. It's like an implied litmus test that will become an explicit one, I think, in a uh, future Democratic administration. Uh, Citizens United, of course, is the campaign finance case. And Shelby is the Voting Rights Act preclearance case uh, about whether a state or a locality can pass a, any new voter restriction without getting it precleared by the either a federal judge or the Department of Justice. Um, so, you know, I get why Holly, especially after the whole the conservative legal movement is dead, and Adrian Vermule's, what's it called, good citizen constitutionalism? Some or well. common
1: stuff. good constitutionalism. Yeah, 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 that's yeah. What good it, c- yeah.
0: yeah. <laughs> uh, you know they're they're trying to create what the left already has, yeah. which is like screw the process. That was all well and cute and adorable, but now we need to care about outcomes, and this yeah. needs to be about outcomes. And Holly is is double tripling down on that. I get that. I just don't think that, you know, in that scene of Jerry Maguire, who's coming with me? I don't think anyone's coming with him right now.
1: I think where it would be really interesting is if he made that statement when it's 50 50 in the Senate with a Republican president. Then, uh, are you really going to do that? Are you really going to do that? Hmm, that still would be fascinating now. to see. Um, still
0: no. <laughs>
1: yeah. Uh, that That's when it would be fascinating. But it's, I think, less interesting of a vow when it's not 50 50 in the Senate. So he could cast a vote uh, for somebody against somebody and they'll still be nominated. I mean, still be confirmed. And uh, also when it's, if present trends continue, uh, you're going to have a Biden presidency when he'll, he'll be voting against the nominees anyway.
0: Yeah. Can so, I take us down a weird cul-de-sac that um, oh, please, I, I went in last night? So I uh, had a, our first post brisket date night last night. Nice. Um, you know, our first like date night without the brisket, which was difficult. Any new parents out there, um, I, I thought it would be easier than it was. Luckily, though, because this is COVID, he was just inside and we were on the deck. <laughs> but he was with other he was with other people. Um, anyway, so I'm I'm having dinner on the deck and with two former Senate staffers. And they are telling me a world in which we do not have hearings if there is a vacancy between now and January. Mm -hmm. If There's a vacancy on December 31st. By God, 48 hours later, we will have a vote to confirm on the nominee. And they got very into the Senate rules, which I found super fascinating. And David, I don't know how much you know about the Senate rules or have looked into this question. But this sure, is where I'm, I'm
1: Hawley, a little rusty yeah. <laughs> on the, the ins and outs of the Senate rules. I must confess.
0: This is where exactly what you're saying, Josh Hawley, could vote against the nominee, and they would still get confirmed. But what Josh Hawley is not saying yet is what he would do about the discharge petition that would basically get us around having a hearing. And what uh, my wonderful friends were telling me is we're never going to have a Supreme Court hearing again. That that is dead after Kavanaugh. Hmm. And what's going to happen is a nomination is going to get referred to the Judiciary Committee. And by the way, forgive me, Senate staffer friends, when I butcher these rules, but this is my understanding. And I definitely have the gist of it right. Uh, Nominee gets referred to the Judiciary Committee. After 24 hours, if the Judiciary Committee has not acted on that nominee, which obviously they wouldn't have done, anyone can then move to discharge the nomination from the committee. And it's just the majority of the quorum present. So you don't need 51 votes for that. You just need whoever's there. So, for instance, even if Republicans were in the minority uh, at some point in the future, you would force Democrats to be there basically every day to keep voting against things, et cetera. Right. So- This is they were pointing this out of like, why didn't the Democrats do this around Garland? They could have forced his nomination in the summer of 2016. They actually chose not to for a variety of reasons, one of which is they were so certain Hillary would win. Right. Of course, there's the sense that if you did this sort of thing, the legislative filibuster would sort of be the revenge. Mm -hmm. So that's all to say, Hawley could vote yes on the discharge thereby skipping the hearing and then just vote no on the nominee, which would be a not necessary vote to confirm the nominee. Otherwise, but if that happens, by the way, and Biden wins, the legislative filibuster is gone. I mean, it's gone anyway, but it's extra gone if we end Supreme Court nomination hearings.
1: So I had a really fascinating back and forth. So I'm going to take us further down this cul-de-sac because I think- It's a long
0: cul-de-sac. It has several houses on it.
1: Well, yeah, and it's really fascinating. So. And, and perhaps quite consequential for the history of the United States. So if, if a there is a vacancy that opens up between now and January, here is the question. If Republic, Republicans could absolutely push through, I mean, they could push through even in a lame, let's suppose, let's just again, assuming present polling, polling trends continue, which they may not, we're not predicting they will, we're just assuming for the sake of argument. Um, you could have a lame duck president and a lame duck Senate uh, and a Supreme Court vacancy. Would the Republicans push through? And my, I had a really smart group of friends or should they push through? Should they, that was the question. Should they? And I had a really smart group of friends. Uh, one, one side says, well, of course it's just politics. This is what you do when you have power is you Achieve what you want to achieve. And then another group of friends said, that would be very bad for our republic. And here's why. Because immediately what would happen if you ram through, let's say, a replacement for a progressive justice in a lame duck session or very close to it on the eve of an election, whatever, immediately the legislative filibuster is nuked. And immediately you're staring court packing in the face. Yep. Because there would be such an explosive political atmosphere in the United States. And sometimes you have to consider the effect of your exercise of raw political power on the larger body politic. And it's interesting, I saw that uh, uh, Senator Grassley said, we shouldn't push forward a new nominee if there is a vacancy. Well,
0: no, no, that's not technically what he said.
1: Okay, what did he technically say? No hearing? That's right. Oh, boy.
0: (laughs) He didn't say he wouldn't vote for the nominee. He said he didn't think there should be a hearing, which Uh I think I don't think Grassley was being cute. However, he has accidentally perhaps provided himself quite a bit of wiggle room there to vote for a nominee if it's on the floor.
1: Yeah, if he says, you know, this shouldn't happen, but I got to cast a vote.
0: That's right. So the discharge uh, petition happens. The nominee is moved from Judiciary Committee to the floor. And then there's a vote and everyone has their say. And, uh, you know, this used to happen back in the day. Uh, One of FDR's nominees was nominated on a Friday, confirmed on a Wednesday, I think. That was the last one before we had hearings, in part because we found out that guy was a member of the KKK. Oh,
1: my gosh. Oops. But, you know, um, I mean, you know, from my writing and everything and, and listeners know, I'm really, 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 really concerned about polarization in the United States right now. And I feel like responsible politicians should take into account in their governance of this country the increasing amount of negative polarization and the increasing amount of hatred and mutual hatred in this country. It's a long, it's it's a existential threat to this nation, I believe, is this mutual loathing and negative polarization unchecked. Unchecked, I think this stuff is an existential threat. And I would like to see people govern as if they recognize it. Yeah, but and they
0: did. In this case, <laughs> I think people would be willing to join you on a, something of lesser import or of at least less long-term import. But you're asking them to make a, uh, you know, lower the temperature decision on a Supreme Court justice? I don't think so.
1: Yeah, yeah, I know. I mean, and I I think that in that argument, what would happen is... um you get the justice through, it'd be confirmed, the legislative filibuster would be nuked, and then you have all-out war over court packing um, at that point. And then we, you know, you might win it, you might lose it, uh, and if you lose it, then you look back and you say, oh crap. Because once that court packing line is crossed, um, I think that, I honestly think that destabilizes our system. If, I think that's true. Yeah. So, no, I agree. Uh, you know, I, I, the, 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 no, they're always the short term, always the short term consideration is going to be towards the exercise of power. Yep. Always. That's why the first argument I make in my book is there is no single important political, social, cultural, or religious trend that is pulling Americans together more than it's pushing us apart. Because the short term calculus is always going to be, to go for the W, always.
0: And speaking of that, by the way, so we got this great email from a listener about Judge Not Justice Garland. Yes. Basically saying what would have happened? How would the court look different today? What decisions would have been different if it had been Justice Garland? And we both thought that was a fun little exercise. Yeah. We did some homework last night and came up with our three cases that uh, we think would have been affected And I am really curious to hear yours.
1: Okay, why do we take turns? Okay. Okay, so three cases that they may or may not be affected. So here's one. I'll start with one that would have been. Okay, and this one is National Institute of Family and Life Advocates v. Becerra, Attorney General of California, short version, the NIFLA case. And this is the case that was a 5-4 decision in favor of crisis pregnancy centers who were being required by under California regulations to give a notice to people who entered their doors or give a notice in their advertisements as to how people in these crisis pregnancy centers, to be clear, are, are, uh, institutions that are pro-life and they are, are, uh, they try to, uh, provide alternatives to abortion for women. They're from built from the ground up pro-life. Most of them are thoroughly religious as well. And, uh, the, California was saying that each one of these institutions has to provide a notice, um, notifying women that they can get a free or a low cost abortion through California, uh, through California, I believe Medicaid. And so this was a compelled speech case that where the um, the crisis pregnancy centers were saying, no, this you're compelling us, California, to advocate for something we completely disagree with. You're compelling us to advertise for abortion when our entire purpose is pro life and this case was decided 5-4 in favor of the pregnancy centers and i think that flips i think that flips and that two think there would be two there'd be the immediate practical occurrence which is that these pro life pregnancy centers would be required to make that statement and then the other longer term occurrence is that one of the underlying issues was whether there was going to be a lower standard of review for professional speech? In other words, if you're a professional engaging in speech in the marketplace, are you going to have, are you going to be treated more like a commercial speaker, like a Chef RD advertising its, you know, its SpaghettiOs? I think Chef RD does SpaghettiOs. Or would you be uh, treated like a political speaker where there's very few limits, that the federal government cannot compel you to say anything much at all if you're a political speaker. Or very, a, a very heightened threshold. And so the consequence would have been the crisis pregnancy centers would have been required to make the notice and professional speech would have fewer protections. That's number one for me. Do you uh, concur or disagree?
0: Yeah, I mean, I think I do. Judge Garland was noted for being uh, sort of a run-of-the-mill liberal judge. Mm -hmm. Not particularly known for anything except for being smart, thoughtful, not extreme. Uh, and certainly on these issues, I think, yep, he would have just sort of faded into another democratically appointed vote, uh, probably more along the briar lines on this.
1: Yeah. Now it's yours.
0: Okay. Uh, I picked Bostock. And uh, Bostock, of course, was uh, 6-3. Mm-hmm. And I think there's a decent chance that Bostock actually comes out uh, the same way, obviously, uh, but I think there's a good chance that all of that fight over textualism that conservatives got very upset about is gone, and now it's just a you know emanations and penumbras of course this is protected there's nothing to hang on to from affirmative action down the road for conservatives there's no discussion of the text itself and what that means uh, it would be just a progressive opinion on civil rights issues and all these, you know, the progressive legal movement's dead because we're arguing over which type of textualism to use uh, would seem a hilariously delightful conversation to go back and start having if you're a legal conservative.
1: Yeah. No, I think you're exactly right. I think that that is, Bostock, it still comes out the way it came out in result, but the reasoning would have been much more expansive.
0: Hugely. Yeah. And, Hugely. um, and probably would have followed the other sexual orientation cases, which, because now there's a question of whether those cases are a dead end. And in fact, now you're going to follow the sex discrimination line of cases or just Bostock created its own little germ cell here. And we're going to see where this goes. <laughs> uh, so in some ways, Bostock would have been unremarkable, uh, in a Garland judicial world. Yeah, it would have continued on Obergefell. Just very like <laughs> Co. Obergefell flipped.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. So similar result, different reasoning. Now this one, I think. So I'm going. My next one is Masterpiece Cake Shop. Okay. So that case had a broad legal question and a narrow legal question in it. The broad legal question was: Did Jack Phillips, the the baker in the case, have a First Amendment free uh, free speech clause? protected right to refuse to use his artistic talents in a commercial transaction to uh, create a custom cake for a same-sex wedding. That was the broad question. The narrow question was, did Colorado target him for his religious beliefs? Okay, the decision did not answer the broad question. It was decided on the narrow question 7-2 that he was targeted for his religious beliefs. Now, here's the question. Now, you would say, okay, if it's 7-2, then it still comes out the same way. I'm not so sure. I wonder if, I wonder if, the, if there was a solid five vote majority of, as you said, you know, Garland was kind of standard progressive ju- uh, jurist, if they would have gone ahead and ruled against Phillips on the broader question and not dealt with the narrow religious liberty question. Mm, yeah. If, if that that's... So I say, I don't know, but don't be fooled by the 7-2 into thinking that Masterpiece Cake Shop would have come out the same way.
0: Okay. My next one, uh, votes flip in this one. So I'm using June Medical. This is mm-hmm. the Louisiana abortion case that... Uh, and the end result this year in our current multiverse... Uh, it was 5-4 with the chief siding with the liberal votes to uphold or rather strike down Louisiana's restrictions on abortions, upholding uh, whole women's health, but only kind of and really going back to the Casey test. Yeah. I think in a Garland court, it is also 5-4, but with Garland, and I think that the chief dissents. Mm. So I actually think that that flips Robert's vote into the minority as long as Louisiana's law falls and the abortion restrictions fall, that he does not join an opinion upholding whole women's health in total, uh, which it would have done instead of going back to the Casey test. It would have had this, you know, continued on the whole women's health test. Uh, And I think similarly, by the way, I'm going to lump in the Nevada church case. I actually think in that case, you have a five uh, vote majority and Roberts is potentially in the dissent as well for the church case. Uh, so basically, where Roberts was the fifth vote mm-hmm. on this like institutional question, I think Roberts now flips to the dissent. Remember, Roberts was in the dissent for Whole Women's Health. Yep. Kennedy was able to be in the majority, <laughs> and yep. he was basically able to get the result he wanted without him having to do it. Uh, so I think that Garland being on the court would have affected the chief quite a bit.
1: Yeah. Can, totally concur. Okay, my last one is Guadalupe. You know my favorite case. Ooh,
0: your favorite.
1: My favorite case from last term. I think that comes out exactly the same way. <laughs> I think that comes out exactly the same way uh, because remember the ministerial exception. the The case that really carved out the ministerial exception was a nine zero case. Hosanna Tabor was a nine zero case. Um. There was nothing that says sort of conventional progressive jurisprudence has to dissent from ministerial exception case law. Now, this might have been 6-3 instead, may not have been 7-2, but I think the bottom line is it comes out basically the same way. So I think on that very critical question of religious liberty, I think that one comes out the same way.
0: So my last one is like the reverse, the mirror of yours. Okay. This is United States v. Davis from last term. It was on a criminal law case and about whether this sentencing thing was unconstitutionally vague. But you don't need to know the details, listeners. All that really matters is you have federal prosecutors versus criminal defendants. Justice Gorsuch is known for being pro-defendant like his former boss, Justice Scalia. Mm Mm-hmm one of the things that Garland was a little bit known for was actually being pretty pro-prosecutor. Interesting. And kind of, you know, I don't mean every time, but kind of anti-criminal defendant. And so there's a really interesting chance that in this case where it's 5-4, Gorsuch siding with the liberal votes, that it comes out the reverse way, 5-4, Garland siding with the conservative votes. Huh.
1: Intriguing.
0: Intriguing.
1: Intriguing. So I think, you know, I, I I sort of spent because I'm, just because I'm uh, ridiculous, I actually was laying awake at night pondering this on a broad range of cases <laughs> 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 after we slacked about it last night.
0: Well, originally David wanted to do 10 and I was like, we're not doing 10, David. No.
1: Yeah, that's too much. But what was interesting to me is as I was sort of wargaming it out in my mind, I was reminded how much there would have been multiple different outcomes, but how much it would be like in, in so many areas of Supreme court law, what you're talking about is not contrary to all of the, you know, hyperventilating fundraising emails that you see or talking head commentary about it. It's not the end of the first amendment or the end. It's sort of like moves a little bit this way and it moves a little bit that way. It moves things change but it's just this slight veering yeah. um, with other checks and balances that can perhaps, you know, reverse your losses. So, for example, in the California Crisis Pregnancy Center case, which I think would be a consequential loss for the First Amendment, to reliberate crisis pregnancy centers, you just have to change the California regulation. Now, that might not happen anytime soon, but it's not a, you know, one. it's not a final declaration that, crisis pregnancy centers have to do X. It's in that state they have to and that state can choose to repeal that provision or not. Again, it's consequential. It is consequential. But I'm really struck by the contrast between these changes versus the sort of the the, the rhetoric that surrounds these potential changes.
0: Well, thank you, Donald, for that really fun question that literally kept David up at night. <laughs>
1: Yes, thanks so much for that. Um, all right, we're kind of running out of time, but we dive want to dive into like this extremely complicated, interesting, fascinating discussion of we had a we had a question from a reader who I uh, I don't have the email right in front of me, but I believe has young children, and because we had this long conversation, Sarah and I. Um, Two podcasts, Sarah interviewed me and I interviewed Sarah about how did we become, uh, how how did we as individuals become not risk-averse, which doesn't mean reckless. There's a difference between reckless and not being risk-averse. How do you cultivate that in your kids? How do you cultivate a responsible responsible risk-taking in kids? And I thought that was a fantastic question. And one of the things that he asked about was, for example, football, which is one aspect. And so I don't know, Sarah, what what did you think about that question?
0: So to me, that is not a question about risk tolerance for the child. It Mm -hmm. is a question about risk tolerance for the parents (laughs) Uh, because you are able to know and weigh everything that you know about what's going on in football versus your community versus the sort of cultural social aspects. But the kid like playing football itself is not actually to me a particular lesson in risk tolerance. There's all these rules. It's not like you can choose to go with or without your helmet as the kid or something. Um, (laughs) But I'm very interested in it as um, parenting. Yeah. So what did y'all, you have a son.
1: Yes. Who played uh, football. You,
0: okay. So you did approach, you did have to answer that question as parents.
1: Yeah. So I, the one thing that I would say about the kid, the kid playing football. So there's many different aspects of courage, right? There's moral courage. There's physical courage. And those two things are not always the same thing. You know, I've seen people pl- display a lot of physical courage. You don't necessarily display a lot of moral courage. Um, so I do think that one thing that football does it 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 does flat out inculcate an element of physical courage. Uh, you talk to when you're around these kids right before they start playing. There's a lot of fear, like especially when they line up as you know when they start playing. They're often small, the, some of the smallest people out there, and they have to get over that fear um, to play the sport. Courage is different son,
0: than risk aversion.
1: Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, it's an element. I mean, it's physical courage, there's physical risk, but, um, you know, that was a really complicated question. And I think that one of the things is that, that boiled down to it for us is our son wanted to play and and he wanted to play badly. He wanted to, why he wanted though? to,
0: why? Because his friends were playing or because he really loved watching football. Cause that would make a difference to me.
1: It was a bunch of things. I, uh, you know, okay. I think he wanted to test himself on the field. Um, I think he liked the sport. Uh, his friends were also playing. He loves, you know, he loves the camaraderie of sports, you know, the, that sort of band of brothers element to sports. And that band of brothers element is very, very strong in football. And, So he wanted to play. And so it became for us a question of how much physical risk were we willing to tolerate for him (laughs) and, and combined with what are the consequences of a parenting decision of saying, no, don't do that. And so it was a hard, we had a lot of discussions at the end of the day. You know, I felt like if he, if he wanted to test himself in this environment, I feel like there was a greater consequence, parenting consequence to saying, denying him that opportunity than to than to um, opening up him to that physical risk. And then if here's what happens, Sarah. So we say yes. Day two of practice in non-contact drills, a he's blindsided by a wide receiver. He's playing linebacker and the, they didn't see each other. The, the, the wide receiver hits him in the jaw, ah. breaks his jaw in two places, dislocates his jaw, and I'll never forget, I get the call from the coach. You need to come to practice. We think Austin broke his jaw. And I pick him up and it's obvious he did. Ugh. And he's in, a, he's in a lot of pain. And he looks at me and the first words out of his mouth were, mom's going to be mad. <laughs>
0: yes, <laughs> like, she is. Oh, yeah. Yeah.
1: But we, we take him to the ER and his, his, he said, I want to come back this year. Wow. So he's in a lot of pain. He has surgery. He has his jaw wired shut. Uh, my wife was a champ. I've never seen somebody prepare so many high protein smoothies in my life. Um, and he comes back and he plays special teams the last three games of the year, which was pretty amazing. And then he played two more years. Uh, he, he ended his high school career in the, in the, I believe it was the quarterfinals of the state playoffs and loved it, loved it. And it's so glad he did it. And we're glad he did it, but it, It was, but just to say that football isn't necessarily the only sport that's physically risky. Uh, The very next year, in the middle of the basketball season, he broke his nose.
0: (laughs) That seems like the most obvious thing to have happen is breaking your nose playing basketball. Bows out, man.
1: Oh, I broke my nose in Hemingway Gym in Harvard Law School.
0: Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Par for the course. Uh, I I knocked out cold. (laughs) To me, risk aversion is about tolerating. Failure in yourself. And so to me, the best way to teach risk aversion, I would think, is to allow failures in small, unimportant ways and allow those failures to get bigger over time or allow at least the ability to fail to get bigger over time. So um, I had... uh, (laughs) I don't don't really know if... I think my dad does listen to this, but I would... Was one of benign neglect quite a bit. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and that I think is to your physical point, right? There was some physical danger if you just leave your young child to like figure it out on their own. I liked building um, uh, uh, playground equipment for my snails, which involved, you know, ha- hammer and nails and stuff. So that's like allowing me to potentially fail in small ways. Um, but as I got older, My parents did not check my homework or ask me when tests were coming. So if I failed to do my homework or failed to study for a test, I was going to fail, you know, in a bigger way, you know, a a test or a class potentially. Uh, And in high school, I did not have a curfew. Uh, And that certainly was allowing me quite a bit of freedom to fail. Uh, And that Mm -hmm. could have come in really big ways, potentially. I could have, you know, ended up in a, in a bad situation. Um, But you know that's something I'm really curious about for parents these days because I needed I didn't have a curfew but I did need to tell my parents where I was but I could lie because we didn't have cell phones I was calling from a landline or a payphone so it's not like they could really call back um, or check in or have a GPS on my phone or find my iPhone type feature um, and I didn't lie because I I didn't want the consequences of being caught lying I liked yeah. my freedom and that lesson was important, I think, to me that like I could fail big if I wanted to and, you know, big to a teenager. Right. But like there, there's some things that could happen. Yeah. Um, but it also taught me like sort of some risk analysis of like, look, on the one hand, do I want to go to that movie that I'm not allowed to go to? I do. On the other hand, boy, it's pretty nice not having a curfew and being able to do whatever I want all the time, which my friends can't do. And all that I have to do is not go to this movie. Yeah, screw the movie. I don't care.
1: <laughs> yeah, I, you know, it's interesting. That's a really, because I grew up with the opposite. I had cur- I had strict curfews my whole life. Went to a college with strict curfews. But at the same time, when I was growing up as a young kid, I was like a free range kid. So it was from a young age, bye mom, bye dad. Okay, be back by six for dinner. Yeah. I'm come in for dinner. And then it's like, bye mom, bye dad. And you're, I mean, even at a young age, you're getting on your bike, you're going all over the neighborhood. And there's this really interesting, uh, Greg, Greg Lukianoff and Jonathan Haidt had this really interesting insight in, in their book, um, that that's just not the way we raise kids anymore. And they ask an audience, what is the age you were when you were first went outside your house and you, you didn't know your parents, you know, you, you went first outside of your house completely unsupervised. Yeah. And they went through ages, seven, eight, nine. And the bulk of the hands went up around nine or 10 years old
0: Interesting
1: for the kid, for the parents. And then they asked the next question, when was the first time you let your child leave <laughs> completely unsupervised?
0: 27. And,
1: and I can't remember the exact answer, but I think it was in the teens, you know, 13, wow. 14. And I think that's a big difference. And we've actually consciously tried to raise our kids the way I was raised, which was, okay. Um, you know, look, I mean, not, it's not, hey, we're going to plop you down in the middle of Manhattan at age 10 and see you at six. But, you know, growing up in a similar kind of environment, um, have the similar kind of freedom that I had. And I think that that's important for kids. And Did uh, you grow you know, up our, in
0: suburb? Where were you growing up?
1: So I grew up in a, uh, it was a small town of about 8,000 and I lived in a subdivision outside of that small town. So okay. I did live in a subdivision. Um, because I do think so, it was
0: relevant that I grew up in a pretty rural part of Texas. Like we lived on the yeah. end of a mile long dirt road. So I do think my age for free ranging was much, much lower, but also there weren't really cars or pavement.
1: Yeah. <laughs> so like when our youngest is nine or 10, she's 12 now and she was nine or 10, we let her get on her bike and pedal around the neighborhood and go to the ice cream shop and things like that in the neighborhood we currently live in. Um. And then the other thing is moral courage. So much harder. I I think that's taught by example um, more than anything. Like my dad, um, I saw him when I was a young kid stand up against some pretty bad stuff in his workplace. And I knew I grew up knowing all those stories and I grew up seeing it and I, I, I saw him in a number of circumstances, display moral courage in church settings, in career settings. I saw him uh, incur career risk in standing up for what was right. And that powerfully impacted me. And And that impact of how the impact that he had on me by doing that has translated into a lot of the decisions that I've made, you know, as a dad that I want to have that that same influence on my kids that he had on me.
0: Oh, that's sweet. So. And a lovely way to end, I think.
1: (laughs) I think so, especially since we're going long. But uh, we left on the table this really fascinating CNN article about some of the inner workings of the court, and we may just put a pin on that and talk about that on Thursday because I think that was really interesting. So anything else, Sarah?
0: No, I don't think so.
1: I don't think so either. Well, uh, again, I would urge you all to go to thedispatch.com, subscribe, become a member, because we have another offering, Sarah's newsletter, which was fantastic. Uh, Looking forward to reading more of it. And we will talk to you all again on Thursday.